16. And um, the instructions were given, were given for the conquering of the city of Jericho, and they were carried out. And so that brings us to verse 17. We're going to start reading in verse 16 and just read to the end of the chapter. Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew at the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew at the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath as ye swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought... And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. And let's pray. Father, as always, it's a great privilege to study your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that uh, everything said and done here would be pleasing to you and that we would just uh, grow more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse number 17, we see that the city is accursed, which there's actually several different translations for that. And you may have a Bible that says under the ban, or some of them have it the same as in verse 21, utterly destroyed. I have a note in the margin of my Bible that says totally devoted to destruction. Everything except the, the family of Rahab and then the, the precious metals that are going to be put in the treasury, everything is to be destroyed. Everything is under this curse. And a curse means a pronouncement of, for harm or injury to someone. A death sentence is pronounced on all the people. All the people. All, all the people except the family of Rahab. Turn back to Numbers chapter 21. This curse may be a continuation or a fulfillment of an earlier vow or curse that was made in Numbers chapter 21. 
Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, And when King Arad, the Canaanite which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. And the, the Hebrew word here that, that uh, is, is both here and in the book of Joshua that is translated utterly destroyed means giving over to the Lord for total destruction. And turn back to Leviticus chapter 27, just kind of as a reminder of the seriousness of vows. We saw there in Numbers chapter 21 that the Israel, Israelites had taken a vow to the Lord to destroy the inhabitants of, the, of Canaan. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 28 and 29. It says, Notwithstanding no devoted thing, that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both man and beast, and of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. None de- That's just unto the Lord. We're, we're to keep that vow. We're to heed that type of warning. When we, when we make commitments to the Lord, we should honor those commitments. Turn to, to Deuteronomy chapter 20. We've actually looked at these verses in the past, but I want to look at them again. Deuteronomy chapter 20. These, there are instructions for war in this chapter, and there there are a different set of instructions for war against cities outside of the promised land, and, and another set of instructions for war for those cities that are in the promised land. Verses 1 and 2, it says, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when ye, when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. And then drop down to verse 10. Verses 10 through 15 contain the instructions for war against cities outside the promised land. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee an answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. So in those verses, terms of peace were to be offered. Women and children and animals were to be spared. Only the males were to be destroyed. But in verses 16 through 18, we have a different set of instructions. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save nothing alive. Thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, 
as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. There's the authority for doing that, as God has commanded thee. Verse 18, here's the reason. That they teach you not to do after their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. So God has His justification, His reasons for ordering this total destruction. And I kind of debated... I, I did actually debate quite a bit when we were actually entering into the book of Joshua. I, I, I kind of debated at that time whether or not to address the the subject of the, you know, whether or not it was ethical to have this type of a war or or to participate in this type of a total destruction. I went ahead and saved that until we got here to chapter 6, but I do want to look at several verses that will kind of give us a background and, and I think lay out a uh, certainly an adequate justification for the Lord's having commanded this. So turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. The question always comes up, many times comes up, and it's certainly a, a common criticism of the Bible, is this same God that ordered the total destruction of women and children is this the same God of love that we see in John 3.16 and that we see in many places in the New Testament? And it's a very troubling question to a lot of people. It's a very difficult thing. Many people reject the Bible for, very, for reasons such as this. So we'll look at some of the, the background that will give us the, the Lord's reasoning for this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 This is God further explaining His covenant with Abraham. Verse 13, And He said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So God is telling Abram that his descendants are going to have to wait. Not only Abram is going to have to wait, but his descendants are going to have to wait. 400 years before they actually realize the promise of actually occupying the promised land. Verse 14, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And that's not talking about the, the, the Canaanites. This is actually talking about Egypt. Also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So, 400 years after the promises made to Abraham, God says that is when his patience is going to have run out with the Amorites, who are just one of the representative groups of the the overall uh, inhabitants of the promised land, the Canaanites. And so, you know, I mean, that right there, you know, those who have difficulty with, with God's ordering of the execution of these people, um... I don't know how you can be, you know, how do you get more patient than that? 400 years. Um, you know, I'd lose my patience in an afternoon, let alone 400 years. And not only we see that the Lord is giving the, the Canaanites a long time, but also the Egyptians. They're in verse 14. That nation is also going to be judged when the Israelites leave that nation. So this is, this is proof of God's patience. Is long suffering. To turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and we will revisit some of the 
description of the wickedness of these people. These are the reasons that God commands them to be exterminated. He doesn't want the Israelites to be dwelling with them at all. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. It says, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. And we saw there in the other verses that we read in Deuteronomy, that's why God wants them exterminated, so that the Israelites don't learn their ways. Verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. They were involved in child sacrifice or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God, For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners, but as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. So again, God's just underscoring his point. He doesn't want them to be drugged down and, you know, to be participating in the same types of abominations, wickedness, sinfulness that these nations had done. And so that's the reason for the order of the execution, of the extermination. Now, some people object to God's methods. Um, In this case, swords. That's that's the method that is that is given. And it you know it's bothersome to people to think of death in such a way that um, is considered cruel and unusual. Um, It's one thing for people to die in a flood or an earthquake or be thrown into a lake of fire, but it's another thing if we're the ones holding them under the water or throwing them into the fire. You know, the actual participation in it. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy both man and beast, but Noah didn't actually drown anybody. For some reason, that seems to make it a little bit more acceptable. In Genesis chapter 19, God rained down fire and brimstone instead of using an army like he's doing in this case to destroy the, Sodom- the Sodomites and those that, that were in Gomorrah. In Numbers 16, verse 30, the Lord, it says, The Lord opened the earth to swallow up Korah and his company. Moses did not push Korah and his company into the pit. And that just seems to somehow make it a little bit more acceptable. Maybe it's because we think that if God did it solely by himself, that somehow it's more just and that there's absolutely no possibility that there's, there was any error in judgment. And somehow if people become involved, maybe, maybe we think it gets a little bit cloudy. But God has chosen at this time to order the people to be involved in the execution. In 1 Samuel 15.33, I think the verse makes it clear. We're not going to turn there, but I think the verse makes it clear that Samuel himself hewed Agag in pieces. He was disgusted with Saul not carrying out the command that the Lord had given him to destroy the Amalekites. And it says that Samuel himself did that. We should not forget that people were commanded to participate in the stoning of their fellow citizens in that day. And we're going to see that in chapter 7 when we get to Achan. Deuteronomy 17.7 makes it clear 
that the witnesses against someone were to be the first ones to cast the stones at them. And then the other people were to participate. So, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we hear a lot in our society and in our news reports about the objections of cruel and unusual punishment. Stoning was meant to be cruel. It, it just was. It was meant to be a deterrent. And, you know, if some of the punishments that we used in our world today were were you know, carried out in the way that the Lord intended them to be, they would be more of a deterrent to crime. Some object to God's inclusion of women, children, and animals. And, you know, we have, of course, all kinds of rules in our world that we have established about how we can treat combatants and non-combatants. We have the Hague Conventions. We have the Geneva Conventions. You may recall not too long ago our president issued a so-called red line in which he told President Assad of Syria not to cross that line. And I personally just thought it was somewhat of a joke. I mean, not that I condone the use of chemical weapons, but it's like he was saying, you know, it's okay for you to kill 100,000 of your people using traditional methods, but if you're going to use chemical weapons to kill 1,000, that somehow that becomes some more of a heinous crime. You know, they just, it's, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction there. I remember when I was in high school. Frequently, there would be fistfights that would break out in the hall. You know, you'd be trying to get to class, and the calls would become congested. And, and I remember in one particular incident, there was one guy that was using brass knuckles in a fight against another guy. And I had made the comment that that wasn't fair. And I remember one of, my, one of the guys that was standing next to me, he said, is there a rule book on fighting? I mean, his point was well taken, you know. I guess there isn't, you know. But it just it was unconventional. It was unusual. It was different. John Piper wrote an article entitled, It's Right for God to Slaughter Women and Children Anytime He Pleases. Of course, you can imagine the, the firestorm that that caused. I read quite a bit of the responses to that article online, and I'm sure the title was meant to be provocative. It was meant to get people's attention. Some of the people were obviously very critical of him. One of the responses, one of the articles in response was called, The Monster God of John Piper. And, you know, we have to be prepared for that. We know that if, if we're going to present the Bible and we're going to present Joshua chapter 6 and we're going to present those passages in which, you know, God has commanded the, the utter destruction of women and children, we're going to have to be prepared to, to discuss those things and to defend God's Word. And that's what John Piper was attempting to do. But, of course, many people would just completely throw out the entire Bible saying, I could never believe in a God like that. And it, you know, it does. It, it really raises the, the issue of biblical inerrancy. I mean, you can't just pick and choose. You can't decide, well, I'm going to believe part of the Bible, but not all of the Bible. If you're going to throw one part of it out, you might as well throw all of it out. I mean, how do you decide? Well, that part, you know, is particularly cruel and unusual and heinous and, you know, beyond my comprehension. And so I just can't, I can't go along with that. I mean, we don't, we don't have that option. We've got to take it all, all or none. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, in Psalm 24, 1, it says, God owns the entire earth. And in Psalm 24, 1, it also says, and all they that dwell therein. God owns it all. And He can do with it as He chooses. And we have to come to grips with that. Turn to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11, verses 19 and 20.
It says, and there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and all, all other they took in battle. Verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should not come, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that he might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. It was of the Lord, then no mercy. That's what it means, no favor. It was God's will. No mercy. God hardened their hearts for that very purpose, so that they would be totally destroyed. Turn to Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. We looked at this verse last week. In verse 13, we have Joshua asking the man that he sees with the drawn sword, Joshua asking him if he's friend or foe. And we, I, I think the Bible's pretty clear that it's, it's divinity. It's probably the pre-incarnate Christ. And in verse 14, the, the, the man with the drawn sword doesn't really answer Joshua's question. You know, as far as friend or foe. He says, nay, or neither. But as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? In other words, he's come to execute justice. It's not really a matter of picking sides. It's not really a matter of whether I'm on the side of the Israelites or I'm on the side of the Canaanites. It's a matter of I'm here to execute justice. In Leviticus chapter 18, you don't need to turn there, but in Leviticus 18, 24-30, God warns Israel very distinctly that any nation that inhabits the promised land will meet the same fate as the current inhabitants if they behave like the current inhabitants. Many times he warned the Israelites that that was going to be the case. If they got into the land and were going to participate in all of the same types of things that the Canaanites were doing, they were going to meet the same destruction and the same judgment. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, just a a little ways back. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. We don't, have, we don't necessarily understand all of God's ways. I'm sure we don't, obviously. But that doesn't mean we have the right to question them. We, we don't have the right to question His plan and His purpose and His righteousness. In... Some of the accounts that I had already mentioned, and of course we could run through the entire Bible and, and, you know, spend a tremendous amount of time underscoring all of the demonstrations of God's grace and mercy. But God, I think some people struggle with this passage in Joshua chapter 6 because they, they, they see it as completely leaving out any of God's mercy. And it is in that one particular case. That's what he said there when we read in Joshua chapter 11. There was to be no mercy shown to them. But it doesn't mean that God is not a God of grace and mercy. Many times he did extend that grace and mercy. You recall the, the incident that we, already, that we already mentioned about Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember just prior to that, Abraham had pleaded with God and said, if there is ten righteous in that city, are you going to spare it? And God said, yes, I will. But he couldn't find ten righteous. And so that was the reason there wasn't any mercy. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to spare the city. And like I said, we could, we could look at numerous accounts. 
Interestingly, turn back to to Joshua chapter 6. In these two chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 7, we have a perfect illustration of how God's mercy was extended to Canaanites in the saving of Rahab and her family and how his judgment was poured out on the Israelites by the total destruction and execution of Achan and his family. So that kind of shoots the argument down that you know, this was all about favoritism, that God was somehow going to treat the Israelites so much differently and hold them to a different standard than he was going to hold the Canaanites. It, you know, it's simply not the case. And like I said, God many times reminded the Israelites that you know, they were going to be punished for those types of things. And they were. Another thing to, to point out, we're not, we're not going to take the time to look at it, but in Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Israelites returned from exile after the Babylonian captivity, at that time, then God didn't give them the same instructions that He gives them here. He didn't command. He said just the opposite. Don't kill all of the, all of the people that are already there. Dwell with them peaceably. Learn to live with them. So that was different. And it's probably because they were not under the same... Uh, death sentence because they hadn't been participating in all of those child sacrifices and that list of things that we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, which was the reasons for the destruction of the Canaanites. And then here, the last part of verse number 17, Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, we see that Rahab, as was promised in, in chapter 2, is, a, is spared. And I, I think it's very noteworthy how it's worded here. It says, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And both the book of Hebrews and, and James both point out that she was saved because of her faith, but they also then mentioned that it was because her faith was accompanied by works, which is what is stated here in this verse. She was saved because she hid the messengers who spies. Now we know she had faith, but she didn't have a faith that sat on the sidelines and did nothing. She had a faith that participated. All right, before we go on to verse number 18, anybody have anything they want to add or or comment on regarding this um, unpleasant topic of total destruction? (laughs) Steve? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I read several things about that. I mean, you know, some people just say, you know, little Canaanites grow up to be big Canaanites. Um, you know, that, uh, I mean, it, I mean, it is. It, it's a question that uh, is, is, is frequently raised. Um, you know, God just, you know, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a good answer. God just demanded total destruction. I, he just wanted no, he just wanted complete separation of Israel from those people. And, and, you know, a lot of people were able to easily, I think easily, they weren't bothered by it because, you know, the argument was that children go immediately to heaven. You know, because of the, you know, because of the belief in, in the age of accountability being whatever it is, you know, at an older age, that these children were actually removed from a, you know, a wicked situation. And, and went directly to be with the Lord. I, you know, that's comforting to a lot of people. I don't know that that's comforting to everybody. But that's, that's certainly how a lot of people were able to, you know, justify that, that, that those go directly to be with the Lord. Anyone else? Yes, Dwayne? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, you know, again, the argument is, you know, at what age would have been the cutoff then? Obviously, there was no age. You know, how corrupt can a six-month-old be? <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyone else before we go on to verse 18? I mean, like I said, it's not a... It's a difficult topic. All right, verse 18. It says, Ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing. You know, the wording here is very deliberate. You, you are responsible for your own actions. You're responsible. I mean, personal responsibility is the emphasis here. You know, and when we're teaching the junior high, that's one of the things that I really try to emphasize to, to them is that they are transitioning to that point in their life where they are really becoming a lot more accountable for the decisions that they make, the actions that they choose. And, you know, that's what Joshua is emphasizing here to the people. They are responsible for keeping themselves from the accursed thing. You know, they cannot shift the blame, you know, and Achan makes no attempt to shift the blame. When, we're, when we get to chapter 7, we'll see that. We live in a society that just, you know, the United States has mastered the art of shifting the blame. It's just, it's terrible. Uh, you know, I picked up a newspaper and, and one of the guys that I went to high school with um, was uh, convicted of embezzling a lot of money from one of the businesses that he worked for. And his excuse was, I have a gambling addiction. Aiken didn't say that. He could have. I stole the wedge of gold in the Babylonian garment because I have a gambling addiction. I mean, people, they come up with all kinds of ridiculous excuses to justify their sin. And they're just shifting the blame. They, they don't want to take personal responsibility as, as what's being, what they're being told to do here in verse number 18. And, you know, you, I mean, we see it all the time. You know, lawyers have all kinds of creative ways for excusing people's behavior. You know, just like the, the incident that I mentioned. And it's very unfortunate. Anyway, going on in verse 18, lest ye make yourselves accursed, um, God demanded total separation. Light and darkness have no fellowship. He just wanted to do away with this entire society. He wanted the Israelites to be separate. And this verse makes it perfectly clear that the curse is not just on the people. It's not just on the people of, of Jericho. It is on the stuff. They were not to even take any of the stuff. It says if you take the stuff, you're going to be under the curse. And also notice the end of verse 18, the warning that your sin troubles others, not just yourself. And frequently, we see that frequently throughout the Bible. We, you know, we see that we can't do something and expect that it's only going to impact our own lives. I can't sin and, and expect that it's not going to have an impact on my wife or my children or those that I work with. It just does, whether we think it's fair or not. I remember when I was in school, you know, sometimes one or two kids in the class would act up and the teacher would just punish the whole class. You know, I remember when I was out for football, the football coach, you know, there was one guy on the team that could never remember to put his mouthpiece in. And so he'd get a 10-yard penalty. And so then the, the next day we'd all have to run 40 laps around the field, you know, and I'd be like, but I had my mouthpiece in. But that's just the way it was. That's the way they, that's, 
people are people people sin, you know, the the whole nation was going to be troubled. And of course, you know, when you go down to, to chapter seven, verse one, that's what it says. It makes it perfectly clear that Achan was the one who sinned, but it says the Lord's wrath was kindled against the nation of Israel, against the children of Israel. He was angry with the entire nation, not just not just Achan. And we have to keep that in mind that our sin has a tremendous impact on other people. Verse number 19, God decides the valuables of the land are to be used for His service. You know, this is really a test of their faith, which, which obviously Achan fails this test. You know, God had promised them all along that there was, this was going to be a land abounding with milk and honey. It wasn't, you know, He never said this is going to be a land abounding with silver and gold. This was a test of their faith as to whether or not God was going to sustain them and be able to meet their needs and to deliver on the promises that He had made that everything that they were going to enjoy great prosperity. And apparently Achan had trouble with that promise because he decides to take matters into his own hands. He later admits his, uh, Achan in chapter 7 later admits his covetousness. And this, you know, this verse makes it clear, verse 19, that it says, they, they, These things are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. It's not just that he was stealing. He's stealing from the Lord. He's taking what belongs to the Lord. We have to be mindful of that ourselves. And all throughout the Bible, money is neutral. It's the love of money that's sinful. Uh, you know, there are numerous incidents where silver and gold were used honorably, and there were numerous incidents where it was used dishonorably. Silver and gold were an honor to Abraham, Rebekah, the tabernacle, David, Solomon, but a dishonor to Balaam, Achan, Delilah, Nebuchadnezzar, Judas Iscariot. And we could just go on and on about the list. It's not, it's not the silver and the gold. It's how it's being used. It's, it's you know what it's doing in somebody's life. Proverbs 16.16 says, Wisdom is far better than gold and understanding far better than silver. And, you know, I have to remind my, do we really believe that? (laughs) You know, sometimes when when we're making decisions, you know, we have to really ask ourselves, okay, is the decision that I'm making, does it really prove that that's true in my life? Have I really put money in its proper place, in its proper context in life? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something that I'm pursuing. Before we go on to verse 20, anybody have any, any comment they want to add? I'm trying to make a better habit of getting class participation. <laughs> verse number 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpet, and it, sh- and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. There, there is a, a tremendous amount of evidence uh, that that has been uncovered. People have spent, you know, decades, centuries doing archaeological excavations of the of the site of Jericho or what, it, what was believed to have been the site of Jericho at that time. Uh, it, it is seemingly indisputable. The walls fell outward. They formed a ramp that made it just very easy for the Israelites to run right up and over the ramp and, and take the city, just like the Bible says that it was going to. Uh, they've actually found that they, they they say they've actually found a portion of the wall that remained on the north side of the town. So that is believed to be the place where Rahab's house was, because we were told in chapter two 
verse 15, that her house was on the wall and she actually let the the two spies down by the scarlet cord on the outside of the wall because she was right there on the edge of the city. They, they say that they found that place that uh, proves that there was a, a portion of the walls that did not fall down. Uh, many people believe that this was an earthquake. I have no problem with that. It, it doesn't make it any less of a miracle if it was an earthquake. I mean, it just doesn't. God can choose to use whatever means He wants to, to make those walls fall down. And we know throughout the Bible, many times God uses what some people call natural disasters but or acts of God to, to cause those things to happen. It doesn't make it any less impressive. It doesn't bring, it doesn't take any glory or power away from the Lord. Archaeological excavations have also proven that there were many things left intact. There were jars of food that have been discovered, grain. And so it, it seems clear that most, if not everyone, um, heeded the warning not to take anything. That Achan was the only one. That there, there are many things that were discovered that were left there. Isaiah 45, 1-3 says that God does these things to display His mighty power. He can crush any defense. And of course, that's what He did here. Verse number 21. And this is, this is again the troublesome verse. Um, but it is what it is. They, they execute God's instructions. They carry them out. The people are destroyed. Unlike Saul, who, who didn't obey the, God's orders and, and destroy the Amalekites, these, these people under the leader, leadership of Joshua do do that. And it does seem harsh. But it's not for us to decide. It's for the Lord to decide. Amos 3.6 says, Can there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Um, Ezekiel 18.32, we looked at this verse a few weeks ago. It says, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I think that's the conclusion that a lot of people probably jump to when they come across a verse like this. You know, it just maybe strikes them as that God is unloving and uncaring and that He didn't bother Him to do this. I don't think the, the, the rest of the, the Bible would support that conclusion. Second Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. And again, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, we, we know that God waited 400 years to do this. He caused Abraham and his descendants not to be able to realize the, the fulfillment of the promise during their lifetime in order to see that his patience, that, you know, he gave the, these nations a tremendous amount of time to change and to repent of their sinful ways. So to me, this is just a, a demonstration of God's great mercy when you really understand how long it took the Lord to carry this out. In verse number 22, we see Joshua reminding the two spies to keep their promise. And, and again, they were probably the only ones would seem clear that they were the only ones who could really make a positive identification. They were the only ones that were going to be able to go in and, oh yeah, we know that's that's the one. We recognize her. We stayed in her home. Um, this was very important not only to the two spies, but obviously to Joshua, to see that their word was kept. 
And, I, you know, I think one of the things that, that we, we mentioned back when we were going through chapter 2 was it, it seems that pretty much every time you come across any mention of Rahab, you have mentioned the fact that she was a harlot. And I don't think that's any accident. I think particularly in these verses here it's mentioned because, or at least I, I could see some of the emphasis being that she was no less entitled to their having kept their word than anyone else. In other words, the status of the recipient didn't matter. If you make a promise, you keep it. I mean, that's a, that's a great lesson for us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how many Christians I know that just don't keep their word. They don't pay their bills. They don't honor their commitments. That's not a good testimony. This is a, this is a great testimony. And, you know, the fact that Joshua brings it up, I, I don't know that this is the case, but it almost kind of makes you wonder if, if uh, he had to remind the two spies to do this. I, I don't think that was the case, but the way it's worded, Joshua was the one that tells them to go in and save her. And I'm sure that that, that brought... I'm sure Joshua felt a tremendous amount of responsibility towards her also because uh, as a leader, he didn't like putting the lives of men in jeopardy. And so the fact that she was instrumental in saving their life was, you know, very important to him. He felt that she was obviously deserving of being rewarded for that. And so that, that, that word is kept. Matthew 21, 31 and 32, Jesus said that publicans and harlots would enter his kingdom before the chief priests. That's, that's a hard one for some people to really, we just place such an emphasis on somebody's status. But the Lord doesn't look at it that way. You know, it's a matter of, Repentance, it's a matter of the heart. And we, we saw in chapter 2 that Rahab was saved because of her faith. She had renounced the, the, um, you know, the practices of her nation and had completely embraced and accepted the Lord of the Israelites. Verse number 24 says the fire, the city was burnt. Again, archaeological excavations, the evidence is, is they've, they've discovered that the, the evidence is clear, that it shows that the city was burnt. Um, again, verse 24, everything that all of the, the vessels, the, the silver and the gold and the utilitarian vessels, they were brought into the treasury of the Lord just like they were supposed to. And again, you know, we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 7. But, you know, the specific procedures weren't outlined as to exactly the, how this was to happen. Um, it, it, it wasn't probably wrong for Achan to have taken any of the things that he, take, that he took. It was wrong for him to keep them. Every, you know, it was probably, I would imagine that each of the soldiers, as they came across these types of things, it was completely within their authority to gather those things up. It was a privilege for them to take those things back and put them into the treasury of the Lord. Achan just took it too far. You know, he took the, the stuff back and then at some point decided that he was going to go bury it underneath of his tent. But it probably wouldn't have been uncommon to see many people walking around with silver and gold because that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to gather it up and take it and put it into the treasury of the Lord. I remember, I, I think I told this story before, but when I was working at No Frills Supermarket in 1986, the manager used to give me a, a brown grocery sack with like $10,000 cash in it, and he'd say, take that to the bank. You know, it made a lot of sense. You don't put it in a, in a bag like you see in the cartoons with a dollar sign on it, you know, and make yourself a target. So you put it in a brown, brown bag. Well, when I, had that, when I had that money in my possession, in my vehicle, it, it wasn't mine, but it was in my possession. But if I had driven past the bank and 
gone around the blocks a few times in temptation, trying to decide whether or not I wanted to actually get. Okay, now I'm now I'm like Achan. I've crossed the line. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to with those things that are under my control. That's what Achan probably did. There was probably a lot a lot of time there where he. He could have changed. He could have repented. He could have decided that I'm going to do the right thing. You know, there was probably this little tug of war going on within him. You know, we don't know. I mean, I'm, like I said, I would imagine that many of the people who had taken silver and gold from the city of Jericho, they probably had it in their possession for hours. You know, again, we don't know what the procedures were as far as when they were supposed to actually part with it and drop it off into the treasury. In verse 25, we see that it says Joshua saved Rahab. And, you know, we see this frequently throughout the book. Joshua, you know, being, being, you know, we're told that Joshua did something, but in reality, you know, it's, it's, you know, under his leadership. The spies actually had gone in and, and saved her. And then in verse 26, we see it says, And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. And he shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and his youngest son shall, be, shall he set up the gates. In 1 Kings 16.34, that's exactly what happened. When Ahab was king, Hiel rebuilt the walls and the gates using his children. And, and you know, it's pretty well implied that that's what happened. His oldest son and his youngest son were, distort, were killed in that process. Um, I find it particularly interesting. It's, you know, somewhat similar during the construction of the Hoover Dam. 112 people died during the construction of the Hoover Dam, and the first man to die was the father of the last man to die, and they died exactly 13 years apart to the day. And when I read that, I thought, hmm, I wonder if there was a curse on that family. I, I have no idea, but I just thought that was, you know, kind of an eerie similarity. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not uh, this curse was violated beyond what Heil did? Probably not. Um, we know that Jericho was a uh, well-known community in the New Testament, and yet uh, we have this, you know, this, this curse here by Joshua that it was not to be rebuilt. But, you know, there are several explanations for that. One is, is that the that the, the really the implication here in, in verse 26 is that Joshua was prohibiting the city from ever being rebuilt as a fortified city. In other words, a city with, you know, six or 12 foot thick walls all the way around the city. Another theory is, is that um, the old city of Jericho never was rebuilt. That the, the city of Jericho that Jesus frequently visited in the New Testament was actually a different location and that Herod had destroyed the old city of Jericho, used some of the, the, the you know, the ruins of that city to build the new city. And so again, you know, we don't really know, but uh, and others believe that once Heil, the the man who who uh, rebuilt the gates and the walls and and had his son and his you know his oldest and his youngest son died, that then the curse was lifted because it it had essentially been fulfilled. So again, there's several plausible explanations for for how this you know is easily you know easily came true. And then in verse 27, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. And, and we, we run across verses like this all the time throughout the book of Joshua. God just continues to, to fulfill his promise to magnify Joshua. He said that he was going to, to 
caused Joshua to be viewed in the sight of all the people, much like Moses was viewed, that he was, you know, going to be perceived as as a powerful leader. And, and that's exactly what happens. And, and again, I, I don't think you can ever find evidence that Joshua seeks this out. He seems to come. He seems to me to be a very humble person. He always deflects the glory that he gets back to the Lord. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not a self-promoter. He's not running after this type of attention. And yet the Lord, you know, the Lord sees it, that, sees to it that Joshua gets this kind of recognition. And he, he, he is perceived. We saw earlier in earlier chapters that, that Joshua was viewed just as uh, favorably in the eyes of the people as Moses was. All right, we're out of time. Uh, anybody have any final comments they want to contribute? Just have a minute or two. Yes, Pat. Yeah, but it says that the walls fell down flat. That, that's what you're saying, right? Huh, okay. Any, anyone else? Any final comment? All right, you're dismissed.